You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. We're launching a new season of the McKinsey Podcast this fall with fresh content. Between now and then, we're rebroadcasting a few of our more popular episodes made pre-pandemic, like the one coming up about McKinsey's seven-step problem-solving process with former host Simon London. He's speaking with McKinsey's senior partner, Hugo Sarazin, and Charles Kahn, author of Bulletproof Problem Solving. So Charles and Hugo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Our pleasure. It's terrific to be here. So problem solving is a really interesting piece of terminology. I think it can mean so many different things. I have a son who's a teenage climber. They talk about solving problems. Climbing is, is problem solving. So Charles, when you talk about problem solving, what are you talking about? So for me... Problem solving is the answer to the question, what should I do? And it's interesting when there's uncertainty and complexity and when it's meaningful because there's consequences. Your son's climbing is a perfect example. There are consequences and it's complicated and there's uncertainty. Can he make that grab? I think we can apply that same frame almost at any level. So you can think about questions like, what town would I like to live in or should I put solar panels on my roof? And you might think that's a funny thing to apply problem solving to. But in my mind, it's not fundamentally different from business problem solving, which answers the question, what should my strategy be? Or problem solving at the policy level. How do we combat climate change? Should I support the local school bond? I think these are all part and parcel of the same type of question. What should I do? I'm a big fan of structured problem solving. But by following steps we can more clearly understand what problem it is we're solving, what are the components of the problem that we're solving, which components are the most important ones for us to pay attention to, which analytic techniques we should apply to those, and how we can synthesize what we've learned back into a compelling story. That's all it is at its heart. And I think sometimes when people think about seven steps, they assume that there's a rigidity to this. It's not at all. It's actually to give you the scope for creativity, which uh, often doesn't exist when your problem solving is muddled. We've been talking about this seven-step process. That's what's written down in the book, but it's a very McKinsey process as well. So without getting too into the weeds, let's go through the steps one by one. Uh, You were just talking about problem definition as being a particularly important thing to get right first. That's the first step. Hugo, just tell us about that. It is surprising how often um, people jump past the step and make a bunch of assumptions. And the most powerful thing is to step back and ask the basic question, what, what, what are we trying to solve? What are the constraints that exist? Let's make those explicit. What are the dependencies? And really push the thinking and defining. And, and at McKinsey, we spend an enormous amount of time in writing that little statement. And the statement if you're a logic purist, it's, it's great. You debate, is it an or, is it an and, and what's the action verb? Because all these specific words help you get to the heart of what matters. And so this is a concise problem statement. Yeah. It is, it is not like, can we grow in Japan? That's interesting. But it is, what specifically are we trying to uncover in the growth of a product in Japan or a segment in Japan or a channel in Japan? So spending an enormous amount of time in the first 
meeting of different stakeholders debating this and having different people put forward what they think the problem definition, you realize that people have completely different views of why they're here. So to me, it's the most important step. I would agree with that. And for me, the problem context is critical. When we understand what are the forces acting upon your decision maker, how quickly is the answer needed? With what precision is the answer needed? Are there areas that are off limits or areas where we would particularly like to find um, our solution? Is the decision maker open to exploring other areas? You really, not only do you become more efficient and move toward what we call the critical path in problem solving, but you make it so much more likely that you're not gonna waste your time or your decision maker's time. How often do, you know, especially bright young people run off with half the idea about what the problem is and start collecting data and start building models, you know, only to discover that they've really gone off half-cocked and in the wrong direction. Yeah. Okay, so step one, and there is a real art and a structure to it, is define the problem. Step two, Charles. My favorite step is step two, which is to use logic trees to disaggregate the problem. Every problem we're solving has some complexity and some uncertainty in it. The only way that we can really get our team working on the problem is to take the problem apart into logical pieces. What we find, of course, is that the way to disaggregate the problem often gives you an insight into the answer to the problem quite quickly. I love to do two or three different cuts at it, each one giving a bit of a different insight into what might be going wrong. By doing sensible disaggregations, using logic trees, we can figure out which parts of the problem we should be looking at, and we can assign those different parts to team members. What's a good example of a logic tree and a sort of relatable problem? Maybe the easiest one is the classic profit tree. Mm -hmm. And almost every business that I would take a look at, I would start with a profit or return on assets tree. And in, in its simplest form, you have the components of revenue, which are price and quantity, and the components of cost, which are cost and quantity. Each of those can be broken out. Cost can be broken into variable costs and fixed costs. And the uh, components of price can be broken into what your pricing scheme is. That simple tree often provides insight into what's going on in a business or what the difference is with that business and their competitors. If we add the leg, which is what's the asset base or investment element, so profit divided by assets, then we can ask the questions, is the business using its investments sensibly, whether that's in stores or in manufacturing or in transportation assets. So I hope we can see just how simple this is, even though we're describing it in words. When I went to work with Gordon Moore at the Moore Foundation, the problem that he asked us to look at is, how can we save Pacific salmon? And that sounds like an impossible question, but it was amenable to precisely the same type of disaggregation and allowed us to organize what became a 15-year effort to improve the likelihood of good outcomes for Pacific salmon. Now, is there a danger that your logic tree can be impossibly large? And this, I think, brings us on to the third step in the process, which is you have to prioritize. Absolutely. Uh, The third step that we emphasize also, along with good problem definition, is rigorous prioritization, which is we ask the question, how important is this lever or this branch of the tree in the overall outcome that we seek to achieve, and how much can I move that lever? And obviously we try and focus our efforts on ones that have a big impact on the problem that we have the ability to change. Mm -hmm. With salmon, ocean conditions turned out to be a big lever 
but not one that we could adjust. So we focused our attention on fish habitat and fish harvesting practices, which were big levers that we could affect. And people spend a lot of time arguing about branches that are either not important or that none of us can change. And we see it in the public square. When we deal with uh, questions at the policy level, you know, should you support the death penalty? How do we affect climate change? How can we uncover the causes and address homelessness? It's even more important that we're focusing on levers that are big and movable. So let's move swiftly on to step four. So you've defined your problem, you disaggregate it, you prioritize where you want to analyze, what you want to really look at hard. Then you've got a work plan. Now, what does that mean in practice? Depending on what you prioritize, there are many things you could do. It could be breaking uh, the work into the team members so that people have clear piece of work to do. It could be you know, defining uh, the specific analysis that need to get done and, and executed and being clear on timelines. And there's always a level one answer, there's a level two answer, there's a level three answer without being too flippant. I mean, I can solve any problem in a good dinner with wine. Uh, it won't have a whole lot of backing. Not going to have a lot of depth to yeah, it. Yeah, no, but it may be useful uh, as a starting point. But if the stakes are not that high, that could be okay. If it's really high stake, you may need level three. <laughs> and have the whole model and you know, validated in three different ways each assumptions. So you need to define the work plan that reflects the level of precision, the time frame you have, and the stakeholders you need to bring along in the exercise. I love the way you've described that because, uh, again, some people think of problem solving as a linear thing. But of course, what's critical is that it's iterative. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you can solve the problem in one day or even one hour. Yeah. And we encourage our teams everywhere to do that. We call it the one-day answer or the one-hour answer. And in work planning, we're always iterating. Every time you see a 50-page work plan that stretches out three months, you know it's wrong. And it will be outmoded very quickly by that learning process that you described. And so iterative problem solving is a critical part of this. Sometimes people think work planning sounds dull, but it isn't. It's how we know what's expected of us and when we need to deliver it and how we're progressing toward the answer. It's also the place where we can deal with biases. And bias is a feature of every human decision-making process. If we design our team interactions intelligently, we can avoid the worst sort of biases. And here we're talking about cognitive biases yep. primarily, right? It's not that I'm biased against you because of your accent or something. These are the cognitive biases that behavioral science has shown that we all carry around. Yep. Things like anchoring, over-optimism, these, these kind of things. Availability bias is the one that I'm always alert to, which mm -hmm. is you think you've seen it before, and therefore what's available is your previous conception of the problem. And that we have to be most careful about. In any human settings, we also have to be careful about biases that are based on hierarchies, sometimes called sunflower bias. And I'm sure, Hugo, you with your teams, you make sure that the youngest team members speak first, not the oldest team members, because it's easy for people to look at who's senior and alter their own creative approaches. It's helpful at that moment in time to ask if somebody is asserting a point of view to ask the question, this was true in what context? You're trying to apply something that worked in one context into a different one. And that can be deadly if the context has changed. And that's why organizations struggle to change. Because you promote all these people 
because they did something that worked well in the past and then there's a disruption in the industry and they keep doing what got them promoted even though the context has changed. Right, right. So it's the same thing in problem solving. And it's why diversity in our teams is so important. And it's one of the best things about the, the world that we're in now. Yes. Uh, we're likely to have people from different socioeconomic, ethnic, national backgrounds, each of whom sees problems from a slightly different perspective and is therefore much more likely that the team will uncover a truly creative and clever approach to problem solving. So let's move on to step five. Uh, you've done your work plan. Now you've actually got to do the analysis. The thing that strikes me here is that the, the range of tools that we have at our disposal now, of course, is just, is just huge, particularly with advances in computation, advanced analytics. I mean, there's so many things that you can apply here. Just talk about the analysis stage. How do you pick the right tools even? For me, the most important thing is that we start with simple heuristics and explanatory statistics before we go off and use the big gun tools. We need to understand the shape and scope of our problem before we start applying these massive and complex analytical approaches. Would you agree with that? I agree. I think there are so many wonderful heuristics. You need to start there before you go deep into the modeling exercise. There's an interesting dynamic that's happening, though. Uh, in some cases, for some types of problem, it is even better to set yourself up to maximize your learning. Mm. So your problem-solving methodology is test and learn, test and learn, test and learn, and iterate. Uh, and that is a heuristic in itself. And the A-B testing that is used in, in many parts of the world, so that's a problem-solving methodology. It's nothing different. It just uses technology and feedback loops in, in a fast way. The other one is exploratory data analysis, EDA. When you're dealing with large-scale problem and there's so much data, through very clever visualization of data, get to the heuristics that Charles was talking. And by testing, you test with your data. So you need to set up an environment to do so, but you don't get caught up into neural network modeling immediately. You're testing, you're checking, is the data right? Is it sound? Does it make sense before you launch too far? You do hear that these ideas that if you have a big enough data set, enough algorithms, they're going to find things that you just wouldn't have spotted, find solutions that maybe you wouldn't have thought of. So is machine learning, does it sort of revolutionize the problem solving process? Or are these actually just another tool in the toolbox for structured problem solving? It can be revolutionary, and there are some areas in which the pattern recognition of large data sets and good algorithms can help us see things that we otherwise couldn't see. But I do think it's terribly important that we don't think that that particular technique is a substitute for superb problem solving, starting with good problem definition. Many people use machine learning without understanding the algorithms that they themselves can have biases built into them. And so just as 20 years ago when we were doing statistical analysis, we knew that we needed good model definition, we still need good understanding of our algorithms and really good problem definition before we launch off into big data sets and unknown algorithms. Step six, you've done your analysis. So for me, I take six and seven together, which is, uh, and this is the place where you, you know, young problem solvers often make a mistake. They've got their analysis and they assume that that's the answer. And of course, that isn't the answer. The ability to synthesize the pieces that came out of the analysis and to begin to weave those into a story that helps people, and this is back to where we started, answer the question, what should I do? If we can't synthesize and we can't tell a story, 
then whoever our decision maker is can't change the answer to what should I do. But again, these final steps are about motivating people to action, right? Yeah. I'm slightly torn about the nomenclature of problem solving because it's on paper, right, until you motivate people to action. You actually haven't solved anything. I love this question because I think decision-making theory without a bias to action is a waste of time. And everything in how I approach this is to help people make action that makes the world better. Hence, these are absolutely critical steps. If you don't do this well, you've just got a bunch of analysis. We end up in exactly the same place where we started, which is people speaking across each other, past each other in the public square, rather than actually working together shoulder to shoulder to crack these important problems. Yeah. In the real world, we have a lot of uncertainty, arguably increasing uncertainty. How do good problem solvers deal with that? At every step of the process. In the problem definition, when you're defining the context, you need to understand those sources of uncertainty and whether they're important or not important. Uh, it becomes important in the definition of the tree. You need to think carefully about the branches of the tree that are more certain and less certain as you define them. They don't have equal weight just because they've got equal space on the page. And then you know, when you're prioritizing, your prioritization approach may decide to put more emphasis on things that have low probability or, uh, but huge impact or vice versa, you know, put a lot of priority on things that are very likely and hopefully, you know, reasonable impact. So you can introduce that along the way. You just need to be, when you come back to this, the synthesis, be nuanced about what you're understanding, the likelihood. And often people lack humility in the way they make their recommendation. This is the answer and they're very precise. And I think we would all be well served to, you know, say this is a likely answer under the following sets of conditions and then make a bit of the level of uncertainty clear if it is appropriate. It doesn't mean you're always in the gray zone. It doesn't mean you don't have a point of view. It just means that you can be explicit about the certainty of your answer when you make that recommendation. So it sounds like there is an underlying principle of acknowledge and embrace the uncertainty. Don't pretend that it isn't there. Yeah. Be very clear about what the uncertainties are up front and then build that into every step of the process. Every step of the process. Yeah. So we have just walked through a particular structured methodology for problem solving. But of course, this is not the only structured methodology for problem solving. One that is also very well known is design thinking, which comes at things very differently. So Hugo, I know you have worked with a lot of designers. Just give us a very quick summary. Design thinking, what is it and how does it relate? It starts with an incredible amount of empathy for the user and use that to define the problem. <laughs> it does pause and go out in the wild and spend an enormous amount of time seeing how people interact with objects, see the experience they're getting, seeing the pain point, their joy, and use that to infer and define the problem. Problem definition, but out in the world. With an enormous amount of empathy. There's a huge emphasis on empathy that, you know, traditional, uh, more classic problem solving kind of like is, you know, you define it based on an understanding of the situation. This one almost presupposes that we don't know until we go see it. <laughs> the second thing, you need to come up with multiple scenarios or answers or ideas or concepts. And there's a lot of divergent thinking initially. That's slightly different versus the prioritization, but 
not for long. Eventually you need to kind of say, okay, I'm gonna converge again. And then you go and you bring it back to the customer and get feedback and iterate. And then you rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And there's a lot of tactile building along the way of prototypes and things like that. It's very iterative. So Charles, are these complements or are these alternative? I think they're entirely complementary, and I think Hugo's description is perfect. Uh, when we do problem definition well in classic problem solving, we are demonstrating the kind of empathy that design thinking asks us to approach at the very beginning of our problem. When we ideate, and that's very similar to the disaggregation, prioritization, and work planning steps, we do precisely the same thing, and often we use contrasting teams so that we do mm -hmm. have divergent thinking. The best teams allow divergent thinking to bump them off of whatever their initial uh, biases in problem solving are. So for me, uh, design thinking gives us a constant reminder to creativity, to empathy, and to the tactile nature of problem solving, uh, but it's absolutely complementary, not alternative. I think in a world of cross-functional teams, an interesting question is, do people with design thinking backgrounds really work well together with classical problem solvers? And how do you make that chemistry happen? Yeah, it's not easy. And when people have spent an enormous amount of time seeped into design thinking or user-centered design, whichever word you want to use, uh, methodology, if the person who's applying classic problem-solving methodology is very rigid and mechanical in the way they're doing it, there could be an enormous amount of tension. And if there's not clarity in role and not clarity in the process, I think having the two together can be sometimes problematic. The second thing that happens often is the artifacts that the two methodology tries to gravitate, you know, can be different. Classic problem solving often gravitates towards a model. Design thinking migrates towards a prototype. Rather than to write a big deck with all my supporting evidence, they'll bring an example. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that feels different, that you spend your time differently to achieve those two end products. So that's another source of friction. Now, I still think it can be an incredibly powerful thing to have the two, if there is the right people with the right mindset, if there is a team that is explicit about the roles, if we're clear about the kind of outcomes we are attempting to bring forward, and there's an enormous amount of collaborativeness and respect but they have to respect each other's methodology and be prepared to flex maybe a little bit in, in how this process is gonna work. Absolutely. Yeah. The other area where it strikes me there could be a little bit of a different sort of friction is this whole concept of the day one answer, which as we were just talking about in classical problem solving. Now you know that that's probably not gonna be your final answer, but that's how you begin to structure the problem. As I would imagine your design thinkers, they're going off to do their ethnographic research and get out into the field, potentially for a long time before they come back with their at least initial hypothesis. That is an, a great call out, and that's another difference. Designers typically will like to soak into the situation and avoid converging too quickly. There's optionality in exploring different options. And there's a strong belief that keeps the solution space wide enough that you can come up with more uh, radical idea. Uh, if there's a large design team or many designer on the team and you come on Friday and say, what's our week one answer? They're gonna struggle 
they were not going to be comfortable naturally to give that answer. And it doesn't mean they don't have an answer. It's just not where they are in their thinking process. So great. I think we are sadly out of time uh, for today. But Charles and Hugo, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here, Simon. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.